Welcome to Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate, the show that brings you illuminating interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders throughout all corners of the real estate sector. Each episode will feature different masters in real estate, revealing challenging lessons they've learned, their secrets to success, and opinions regarding the state of the market. This is Taylor Mammon, Chief Executive Officer of RCL GoFund Advisors. If you're a regular listener to our podcast, then you know that since 1967, RCL Go has been the first call for real estate developers, investors, the public sector, and non-real estate companies seeking strategic and tactical advice regarding property investment, planning, and development. Welcome to the latest episode of Conversations with Best Minds in Real Estate. For today's episode... We're deviating a bit from a regular format to present an informal conversation between me and Adam Ducker, Chief Executive Author of RCLCO, my colleague and friend, about the state of the market, about how we're helping clients respond, and what we can expect going forward. Adam, such a pleasure to be here with you. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I, I do have to say I'm a little self-conscious. We usually use the term best minds in real estate to describe our clients. I was just thinking the same thing. It feels a little presumptuous. We don't use it often, but at one point we we toyed with the tagline that our aspiration is to be at the table with the best minds in real estate. So today we'll be aspiring to be among the best listeners in real estate. And that'll be a lot of fun. Fair enough. Uh, So I'll frame up how we're going to do this. We've we've, um, planned on doing a little bit of a look back what has happened in real estate markets in 2021? I suspect it'll really be since COVID. You know, where do we think we are right now? We're gonna we, we oftentimes spend time talking about the real estate cycle as a framework, and we're gonna use that. We might problematize that a little bit, but we'll spend maybe a segment on that, and then we'll spend the last part of the podcast um, discussing where we think we're going and what that means for real estate investors and sponsors. And we are going to talk about some of the lenses that we've suggested as tools for our clients to think about real estate markets and investments and how they evolve. And we may bring some of those back into the conversation and talk about how we think they might change going forward. So that's the framework. Um, I'll, I'll tee up the first one. You know, every every week, the where we are in COVID changes. So, recognizing that as we record this, we're still in the early days of understanding Omicron uh, variant, but but something has changed. So, I think looking back to the start of COVID, what do you process as you know, big picture lessons learned, Taylor? What's really driven or defined the last you know twenty months or so of real estate markets and, and investment opportunity? Yeah, sure. And I I agree with you, though, the situation remains fairly dynamic. And the dynamic situation is impacting behaviors and preferences. Currently, um, we do seem to be on a path to recovery from the most stringent impacts of COVID, thanks to vaccinations, medical treatments, broad immunization, and just simply getting used to that this is a new normal. And so we are seeing certain normalization of practices, 
where people are working, how they are traveling, how they're shopping, and and so on and so forth. And I think what we're seeing is that certain things are sticking. We are seeing fairly significant delays in returning to the office. And those are due both to concerns about health, but also about interest in ensuring that people remain happy and productive as they very oftentimes have been at home. So that that seems to be something that is sticking. And COVID practices falling away uh, very rapidly as well, such as those related to personal travel. We see personal travel coming back to pre-COVID levels very, very rapidly as people express their pent-up demand for for vacationing and so on. So it does seem to be that we are are moving forward, but the world will not be exactly as it was prior to to COVID. Adam, what what do you think? I think that's right. You know, we were talking the other day that really going back to the spring of 2020, we were encouraging our clients to kind of stick to their knitting and not freak out and change strategies, not because we had any clarity on what the evolution of COVID or the economy would be, but just because we kind of learned in the great financial crisis that if you stop or pivot, it just takes so long to build up the momentum in your business. I guess the other like hypothesis we made at that time was, of course, things would change, sort of some of the things you're describing as behavior changes, but it would be a long time before we really knew what they were. And to very early on make a make a bet or change strategy just seemed, you know, 20 months later, however long it's been, that that probably was good advice in, in most cases, certainly not in all cases. Maybe the recovery in real estate was was even quicker than we expected. But it is true that there is still so many unknowns about exactly how things are gonna play out. Well, one of the things that we thought if we're going back to the spring of 2020 would emerge that really didn't was the opportunity to take advantage of distressed real estate. That's great on the one hand, we didn't see a lot of clients that were really dealing with significant challenges in their portfolios like we did during the great financial crisis. But we also had clients that were relatively frustrated, particularly on the institutional side, well, really on both sides of our business, that they weren't able to take advantage of cheap, high-quality real estate. It just simply didn't emerge. Maybe there were a few opportunities here and there, but but nothing in mass. And, and so that has led our clients in the real estate industry more broadly to pivot to other types of opportunities. Real estate continues to be very desirable for institutional capital. And there's plenty of capital out there. It also seems to be relatively attractive as an investment relative to other asset classes. And so clients are very active uh, across the board. They're just not active in distress. Yeah. The hotel is the interesting case study. There was obvious distress at the operating level and some distress at the investment level or from acquisitions or other opportunities. And through 2020, maybe through the first half of 2021, you know, it was, of course, difficult to know, like, was this the distress we were going to see? Why didn't it seem more widespread? Why hadn't the pricing reset even more dramatically? And the distress story of the COVID real estate markets will be how short the window was and the degree to which the flow of capitals really served as a buttress against the downside. We have some clients who fortunately acted quickly and decisively, but the door closed pretty quickly, didn't open very much in a lot of other asset classes. Like we've said, there were 
opportunities to take advantage of distress and earn outsized returns, but those were so quick and so limited that they're not really game-changing for anybody. And so for any of our clients that are looking for game-changing, long-term strategic opportunities, they've been looking where really, Adam, we've been telling them to look for a long talk, which is really where is demand going to be over the long term? And where can they get in to those spaces at relatively attractive pricing? And that does seem to be what's happened in mass in, in the real estate industry is you have lots of investors focused on those areas in which they have a great deal of confidence going forward in the property fundamentals for those property types. And they have a strong degree of conviction that the pricing today is going to be better than pricing in the future. And so industrial is certainly one of those is certainly one of those opportunities, and we suspect it will be for the long term, and I think are supportive of that. There does seem to be really tremendous demand that is sustaining high levels of occupancy, rent growth, overall good property fundamentals in, in the industrial, that even though the pricing is, is very, very high, high multiples, low cap rates for industrial, it seems to be rational given how much potential demand there is there. On the flip side of the equation, there are other property types, office really being one of them, where we're just simply not there. There's so much uncertainty about what office is going to look like in the future and whether there's going to be sufficient demand to sustain it. But there's really very limited price discovery for, for office. Those owners of office buildings are generally well capitalized and just simply aren't selling it at this point. They're going to wait and see if that demand comes back. And so that's that's the other reason why we haven't seen a lot of distress is we didn't see a lot of distressed capital stacks going into the COVID financial crisis. And owners can therefore take a wait and see approach to, to the recovery of their assets. And, and they are. Yes, I think that's right. One of the things that I think was fairly broadly observed fairly broadly, or certainly was true with their clients, is that where our clients had conviction, they stuck to it and may, maybe doubled down. And maybe even more interesting, as people or our, our clients of ours or groups that we observed came to the realization that maybe they were they were underallocated or or that they hadn't appreciated the merits and maybe industrials in this category. Or single-family rental, right? Which people had talked about for a long time and just never had the conviction to act on it. But when groups did, they acted very quickly and decisively, and that turns out to have been good too, right? The pricing moved so dramatically that speed to market wound up being highly rewarded. Right. Yeah. Great. Great strategic advice. Where you have that conviction move quickly, where conviction is potentially limited, okay to potentially put that on the back burner for a while while you're chasing something that that seems to have better prospects for you. I think the other thing that we're seeing now is for those property types or geographies around which pretty much everybody has strong conviction, we're starting to see a great deal of interest in more development in, in those areas. And, and really the last 10 years in most property types, most geographies have been marked by relatively limited development. Really the only exception would be multifamily over the past decade. Everything else was really quite muted. And we're seeing that start to change. This may get us into our next topic, Adam, about cycles. Yeah, what's interesting about development at this stage is it's also being relatively constrained by tremendous price increases as well. These these are, I, I think ultimately, 
the need for new product, whether it's industrial, whether it's single family housing, rental or for sale, multifamily, you know, what we call 21st century office, the need for this is going to overcome any hesitancy about starting something because of uncertainty about pricing, construction costs specifically. But that concern about construction costs is going to weigh on, I think, the production, the construction that we would otherwise see at this point in time, which may, may give us a couple more innings in the cycle. I mean, here at the end of 2021, one of the current, you know, phenomenon of our economy that's that sort of changed my thinking about development is is all of the supply chain disruption, right? You know, we never worried about could you get lumber or Thanksgiving turkeys or whatever might be in short supply. We always thought that development just hinged on this mystical concept of undersupplied one day and oversupplied the next. And it turns out that getting product into the market, even something with a very long development timeline like housing or office buildings, is tied to a so many different variables, all of which are hard to like quantify and predict. And so here we find ourselves in what we thought was going to be the painful recovery from a, a difficult period with with like a significant undersupply of stuff and just a, a real difficult ability to sort of turn up the rate of production. Right. Which, you know, is one of those things, Adam, that, that seems somewhat obvious in hindsight. <laughs> you know, we, we probably should have predicted that uh, given how much things shut down, how globally interconnected supply chains are. I mean, we know those things, yet had no idea what an impact it would have on supply chains. And therefore, just our simple ability to recover or produce a product when it's needed within a market. The, the anecdotes we're hearing from our clients about having to scour every Home Depot in a market for a certain product so that they can finish construction or, or, or finish a, a stage of construction so that they can get, get inspected are just remarkable. They're just simply things we've never heard of before. And that does create a limitation in terms of the amount of products that can be delivered at a time when demand is as strong as it, as it is for housing, logistics space, and so on, thereby just continuing to fuel tremendous property fundamentals. So what does that mean to cycle? Well, that is the question. So as a lot of listeners know, we, we really have used this rubric of the real estate cycle, understanding where we are kind of like relative to investor appetite, pricing, you know, fundamentals and using the framework of mature markets and declining markets and market troughs to inform an investment strategy. We've always said that it's not a, a you know a perfect cycle or repeating cycle, but the last the last five years and not just COVID, even you know in some cases, the 2015 to 2018 period, you know does begin to problematize just how predictable are the cycles, or maybe more importantly, not that not not that we ever argued you could predict them, but just how difficult it is to know where you are at the cycle in the cycle at any one period of time. I mean, that's, I think, what defines, you know, where we are today, right? It feels like we are squarely in the up cycle of the real estate markets with improving fundamentals and rapidly solidifying prices and the beginnings of noise that points to the reality that there's a top, right? Like pricing seems, you know, rich or in some cases even potentially frothy and and it seems like maybe more capital is aligning 
behind certain markets or certain product types, but does does that framework still work? <laughs> does that really sort of give people, you know, information that would help them make a sound investment decision? Right. Well, I think, I mean, Adam, we've talked about this before, that we believe that it's very important to continually look at both property markets, property market fundamentals, which is really where demand for space happens. If you're renting your rent footage or you're buying a house, that's kind of the property market. And then equally pay attention to the capital markets, which is the market for, for deals, essentially. Equity investors and lenders play in the capital markets. And we all, we all fundamentally know these things and fundamentally do the analysis in our heads as real estate practitioners. But I don't know that we're oftentimes as explicit about tracking where both of these markets are, trying to pair them up to a certain degree and figure out what that means for a certain property type, a certain geography, or for the real estate market overall. The classic real estate cycle was really kind of established, I think, with the assumption that capital markets were going to be more or less consistent to a large degree. And it was really emerged in, a, in an era when information or data regarding real estate supply wasn't as good as it is today. And I think supply data still is imperfect, but it is a lot better today than it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, or 30 years ago, when our colleagues you know, here, here at RCLCO really started thinking about the cycle. And cycles in real estate emerged because there was always a period of overbuilding generated by kind of late late cycle inputs <laughs> from prior previously developed products that ended up oversupplying a market leading to everything collapsing and, and just seeing that that uh, that process start every business cycle that really hasn't happened over the past 10 years so we haven't seen overbuilding re really in any way so that's one aspect to it and then the capital markets are fueling demand for real estate, irrespective of how property markets are performing at this point. Capital markets driven by uh, central banks, reducing the, the cost of capital and thereby allowing investors to pay a lot more for every asset type, including real estate. And global investors, also institutional investors, retail investors, and so on, identifying real estate as a necessary allocation and growing those allocations to real estate, creating onward or, or continued demand for real estate products, creating pressure on pricing. So that's kind of what, sorry for the long-winded answer, Adam, but that's kind of what we're experiencing right now is kind of irrespective of how property fundamentals are performing right now. And, and they're pretty good. We're seeing tremendous capital demand, which suggests that we do have a ways to go in this cycle, but either of those things could be disrupted thanks to a black swan event like a virus or dramatic changes in capital market appetite. In the last decade, one of the things that has been interesting is these mini geographic, mini cycle blips. You know, Washington had a little mini cycle associated with sequestration and the federal government. Houston had a little mini cycle blip associated with changes in the energy economy. And so maybe maybe the more localized demand fundamentals will describe cycles, particularly in a world in which just the persistence of capital and maybe a more contrarian 
investment strategy which suggests that like if the markets get a little weak, it might be time to demand down, which kind of mutes the downside of the cycle. Right. It shouldn't be a novel concept that, that real estate is local and there might be microcycles to pay local microcycles to pay attention to. That certainly is relevant. And then Adam, we spent time, if you recall, earlier this year discussing as a group a great article that or piece that Howard Marks wrote titled Something of Value that really talked about uh, conventional assumptions that investors use that, that things are going to revert to the mean. And the whole concept of the cycle is that things get overheated, they're going to revert to a down cycle. And then overall, over the long term, you see growth, but it's going to be up and down. Howard Marks really points out that there are certain trends that escape the break to the mean philosophy. You know, he uses Amazon as, as a company that has clearly done that. You know, I think we might point to, a potent, to potential examples in real estate such as logistics at this point that, you know, it, perhaps that is a segment of real estate that is moving beyond, at least for now. I'm not saying it's going to escape it forever, just as I would say that Amazon doesn't necessarily escape a reversion to the mean forever. But at least for now, logistics may have more runway to it um, than a business cycle would suggest. You might say similar things about other property types like single-family rental that are emerging. It might take a while before they meet all of the demand that's there for it. Those discussions were were really like transformative for me. I realized that I had just carried somewhere in the back of my mind this binary worldview that if markets got very hot, that eventually they would cool. That kind of like the second home market got hot once before and it cooled, and so that would inevitably happen again. And of course, that, that's not how markets work. It, it was liberating in the sense of, encouraging us, which I think is what Mark says in the article, to really focus on what are the drivers of consumer appetite for the product? Are those likely to change? And have the producers of that product responded, over-responded, or under-responded, which, you know, in some cases, or maybe even in many cases in real estate today, there's a pretty strong argument that they have under-responded, right? They left the space. And it does leave us continuing to think about how to revisit the cycle model. But it's it's exciting. Yeah. And, and it's not to suggest that the traditional view of the cycle has to be thrown out or anything like that. I think it just we, we have to recognize that, of course, as it's always been, it's more complex than a simple wave on a chart. But I think increasingly, like I said before, to focus on both property markets as well as capital markets and to identify those trends that may be moving certain geographies, certain property types, and so on, out of at least the same time frame of cyclicality of everything else we're looking at. You know, two of the tools that, that some of our colleagues who spend a lot of time in our management consulting business use are the playbook concept, like you don't know ever where you are in the cycle, but you have an idea and you have a playbook. When cap rates and interest rates invert, you do X. That, that hasn't happened lately, but that still seems valuable. I think actually we did observe that our clients who had adopted that framework were very nimble through the second half of 2020 and, and in 2021. The other tool that that we've, and I know you've spent a lot of time working with groups, thinking about how sensitivity analysis should really be used. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And trying to move beyond single variable sensitivity analysis to look at multivariate sensitivity analysis, Monte Carlo analysis, and it really to understand 
the range of statistical alternatives that might result in a particular investment, something like that. We think those tools are very helpful. The data is never quite good enough. The data will never be good enough to give you a, an answer that is statistically significant or entirely reliable. But we think the exercise of exploring the range of outcomes is incredibly valuable as it makes you question the underlying assumptions. You know, the other article that, that you encouraged us all to spend some time on, I guess it was really the National Bureau of Economic Research paper on buying fast and slow, I think was also really good reading this year or the discussion around just getting out of our so much focus on buying and so little thought about selling. Yeah, Cindy Thomas, our colleague, found this article, circulated it, and then we <laughs> circulated it more broadly with the team as well. And it was it was very helpful, not because we, on behalf of our clients or our clients, are lousy sellers or we think they're lousy sellers, but because it points out through some fairly compelling research on public market investors that we oftentimes use different uh, thought processes when we buy versus when we sell assets. Different parts of our brain, different combinations of intellectual review versus emotional review are, are at play. And it's important to be aware of these when making these decisions. Another reason to be introspective when making important decisions, and for us, when making important recommendations to our clients. Yeah, you know, we spend a lot of time with our clients on the question of which markets should I be in, <laughs> you know, or which market should I move to, right? Very exciting. <laughs> and we're working with a client at the moment saying, you know, I think X markets is too many. How do I decide which markets to stop investing? <laughs> and that, that thinking about where have the fundamentals moved, right? Where has there been a shift that I, I need to respond to? And it's hard to move away from assets or markets, you know, it's it's overstating it, but it's like, which of your kids do you love the least? You know, <laughs> but 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 it has really pushed us, I think, to kind of change the analytical framework that you know we use to really focus on. There may have been very good reasons to be investing here or in this asset, or but but what's changed, or is just no longer so true or so clearly true. Well, maybe we should talk about where we think the world is going from here, where our clients are or might be going from here. And we, we said we would start with kind of a discussion around capital flows and what's happening. And, and maybe in particular, I know you spend a lot of time thinking about like what's driving changes in capital flows. What, what do you see that's interesting at the moment that you think might define a little bit about what happens in 2022? Yeah, sure. And though we spend a lot of time in this area, of course, when working on behalf of institutional investors who are investing in all investable asset types, real estate is, is just one option. And so we really have to therefore think about the context in which real estate investment takes place. And I mentioned before, but we see really strong tailwinds for real estate investment just simply because global investors are reallocating portions of their portfolios some asset classes into real assets and in particular real estate driven primarily by incredibly low long-term bond yields they just aren't able to meet the long-term fiduciary requirements uh, or actuarial requirements rather of these uh, of these plans so that's a, a 
really important long-term trend. It likely sustains pricing and demand for real estate assets among investors for at least a decade, because that takes a long time to do all of that. The other really broad shift has to do with the benchmarks in real estate, in, in that all institutional investors are, are tracking their private real estate portfolios against indexed benchmarks, whether it's from the NPI or Odyssey or MSCI. And generally, those benchmarks have focused potentially, I, I'm not going to say too much, but they certainly have focused excessively on just the, the major four uh, property types, the major, the, the major food groups, office, industrial, retail, and residential. And residential really means uh, multifamily. And I think investors are increasingly recognizing that if you're looking at a, a broad real estate universe and, and, and even investable universe, that there is much more to invest in than these four property types. And in fact, two of these property types, office and retail, may be problematic for a while to invest in and therefore not capable of consuming vast portions of an institutional portfolio. And so I think we're going to see general demand for what have been known as niche property types and in the increased institutionalization of those property types as well as as as, as capital just simply demands it. You know, a lot of people have commented that in addition to the just need for yield or income, that the increasing liquidity of the real estate markets has driven the kind of increasing openness to the sector and the, the changing allocations. But it's very interesting that both through COVID, the liquidity remained quite strong. And in those less typical or still emerging sub-asset classes or more exotic asset classes, those markets have proved quite liquid too really has kind of made investing in them just just that much more realistic for so many people. It it does not also seem like, you know, there's a real threat to that, you know, absent some black swan event as you described earlier. No, I think that's I think that's right. And Adam, you mentioned earlier on this call single family rental as an emerging asset class. And a lot of people compare investor interest in single-family rental today to that which was experienced in the 90s for multifamily, as an example, which at that time, it, it was a neat property type for institutional investors, was emerging at that point. Yet, institutionalization, the growth of capital in single-family rental is happening at much more rapid pace than what we experienced in the 90s and 2000s in multifamily probably due to the increased sophistication of investors, as well as interest in identifying opportunities early in order to generate outsized returns, recognizing that if you wait too long, you're just simply not going to be able to get there. You know, I know you have an interesting take on it. So maybe I'll suggest you share around some of the thinking you've done around how investor focus around ESG or, or other types of equity really are beginning to play out in real estate investing and how that moves markets? Yeah, sure. So we've seen tremendous growth of interest, primarily among investors, though pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, insurance companies, and so on in ESG that is being driven, I think was being driven initially by 
um, maybe uh, a political or social interest in these topics, but I think is increasingly being driven by a recognition of the tremendous risks and opportunities they represent at, at, at this point in time, with really European investors recognizing this first, but it very quickly becoming a mainstream point of diligence and concern for U.S. domestic investors as well. The discussion has moved really very quickly from you know, how, how do you respond in a questionnaire to questions about you know, environmental, social, and governance issues in addition to diversity, equity, and, and inclusion to, boy, how do we really recognize what risks these entail over the long term to our real estate investments and our real estate investment partnerships? That, from, from my perspective, is a much more interesting an important conversation, one that we are, like like many others, spending a lot of time in, spending a lot of time identifying and supporting third parties that are starting to acquire data that might help us better evaluate the impacts of these things, but at minimum, discussing them, recognizing that we may not be able to quantify everything, but we we can at least discuss our assumptions and identify ways in which greater attention to the risks of climate change uh, in underwriting may lead to better performance of portfolios going forward, or asking good questions in diligence processes with managers regarding how they treat their team members, how they recruit, what they do when faced with questions about equity within their environments, how these impact the health of long-term relationships between LPs and GPs. As, as we know that it costs a lot of money to set one of these things up and it costs a lot of money to, to terminate them a lot of times, best to avoid these types of risks. You know, some of the other kind of more macroeconomic forces that we've talked about, I'm not sure that we have a strong conviction over what they mean for real estate or investing, but we, your and my career has never included an, an inflationary period of time. I mean, we certainly know the normative thinking around how inflation impacts real estate markets, but, but it will be interesting to see, well, assuming that there really is inflation, not a, not a game, but if there is, what that does. And the other things, of course, that, that people have asked us about is, is infrastructure spending going to be of a of magnitude that it drives markets. Our, our sense is probably not dramatically, but but at a micro level, infrastructure spending is for sure something that drives markets. And we are including encouraging our clients to really think about projects that change the nature of a location or the value of an asset or the dynamics of who might be moving or or choosing to, to, to locate their office in a given neighborhood. Well, Adam, based on all of this, what, what are you telling clients these days that they should either worry about, whether it's inflation or you know, environmental risks or, or whatever, as well as where they should be focusing on taking advantage of opportunities, whether it's pent-up demand that hasn't fully been realized or, or something else? Entirely? I guess there are three maybe themes that we are spending a lot of time exploring with our clients, whether they, they apply to their business and how, you know, when, when the markets are very active and well-priced, you know, if you're a seller, they're terrifically priced. And it's the time for, for talented sponsors to be thinking about value creation. So we really are working with our clients on thinking 
about development and aggressive value add, why that makes sense, and taking risk that they can mitigate through expertise or experience or kind of a unique approach, right? So not so much about just betting on a market or an asset type or or a, or kind of a customer group, but but really sort of you know being creative about tailoring a, an asset level solution that kind of responds to an opportunity that's unmet, right? Number two, we do think there's been some herd mentality impact on pricing, right? So so there may be things that, that turn out to be underpriced or underappreciated and, and that creates unique opportunities, whether that's, you know, older suburban office buildings that are either repositionable or reusable or, you know, shopping centers that are either repositionable or reusable or hotel assets. So I think, you know, that what are the assets that have been painted with a very broad brush, but the pricing or the inherent location or character of the building might create an opportunity. And then, you know, lastly, there are structural changes, particularly demographic changes that are, we believe, long lasting and that will really drive opportunity, you know, some, none of which are from out of left field, right? The migration to the Sun Belt and the Intermountain West are real. And, you know, we're, we're oftentimes thinking about what's the next Nashville or Salt Lake City. Well, Salt Lake City might be the next Salt Lake City, but, you know, that question. Or what's the next, you know, rental housing meant one thing 25 years ago. And now there's what we think eight to 10 sub-asset types in rental housing. So what's the next version of rental housing that relates to things like the very low headship rate or the fact that the millennials are, are now having kids? So those are the things that we're encouraging our clients to think about. Yeah, you know, Adam, as you mentioned, all of those opportunities, the challenge, I think, that we all face in evaluating as and, and taking advantage of those is a human capital challenge, ultimately. You know, having people that are creative and collaborative and interested in identifying what's around the corner in, in order to really take advantage of them and, you know, engaged enough to figure out the details around it as well. So it really brings home the fact that ultimately, you know, we might, we might all be real estate companies or consulting companies, but we're all people companies in the end. It really relies on who, who is doing the work and, and the importance of that, which would be a great topic for another podcast at some point that we'll have to find some, some better minds than us to help us figure that out. You know, along with trying to better leverage data in, in the business as well in order to better look around the corner. Again, another topic for another day. I think on that topic of data and on the topic of people, I mean, I think one of the one of the challenges that people have at, at this moment in time is that there's plenty of opportunity for most people in real estate to, to do what they're doing, right? Build houses or, you know, improve office buildings or operate hotels. And so there's like this voice in the back of your head that's encouraging you to, to take the time and deploy the resources to explore other venues, but your people are limited and the amount of data that's at your fingertips is finite. And so, and by the way, things seem expensive, right? They're all of these, you know, road bumps or there are all these reasons for inertia. I mean, one of the things that we think is our job is to encourage people to, to spend time and energy thinking about them anyway. But in a resource-constrained environment, which is maybe 
the most dominant theme of the end of 2022, whether it's physical resources or human resources, or, you know, one of the things that we talk about all the time, just, you know, thinking hours in the day, <laughs> resources that are constrained. It's hard to not just get into a track of doing the same thing, but, but that's what January is for. Next, there's always next month. That, that's exactly right. So I, I, all kidding aside, I think those companies that are able to figure out how to invest time and dollars today, and it isn't, um, it doesn't, maybe doesn't need to be a significant amount of a, of a, of a company's overall budget, but it, but it's sufficiently meaningful to look around the corner and identify the, the risks to their existing business and the opportunities that exist alongside them or in close proximity to it are, are going to be those that survive and thrive throughout this cycle, however long it lasts, and are really able to take advantage of it. You know, I would, maybe that's a good place to end. I will say here as, as the holidays get closer and closer that, you know, we feel so grateful that we do get, you know, asked by our clients to sit around with them and think around the corner and Hopefully, we're a little helpful in the process, but we really do consider it an honor and a joy. I plan on doing this all next year and for many years to come. Absolutely. Looking forward to it very much. Thank you, Adam. Okay. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Happy holidays and Happy New Year. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of Conversations with the Best Minds in Real Estate. If you are interested in learning more about RCLCO, go to rclco.com and follow us on Twitter at RCLCO. Don't forget to subscribe to new episodes of the podcast and make sure to leave us a rating on iTunes. Thanks for tuning into the show. 